0: Uh, 500 years ago, I was just thinking this as we were sitting there, Um, for Americans, maybe 500 years is a long time, like Chinese brothers and sisters in China, sometimes (laughs) we would talk about American history and they'd go like, 200 years ago? We have a 5,000 year history, (laughs) but 500 years ago, I just think if we went to church, it would have been very different than what we just experienced. No hymns. Very few hymns. It was very rare. The mass was didn't involve uh, hymns. A lay person coming up and sharing how God was working in their life, how in their interaction with God's word, God had been moving and sharing those things. Five hundred years ago, it was all clergy-driven. The ordinary person didn't have an opportunity to encounter the scriptures. They didn't have a Bible to have a quiet time every day with. This idea of having a men's small group and confessing your sins to other men. No, you only had to confess your sins to a priest or it didn't count. So the idea of other men telling you, "Brother," through the authority of Jesus given us, your sins are forgiven. Wouldn't have happened. 500 years ago. Uh, it's really amazing what God did. And, and the more I've been studying it, uh, the more my heart's filled with thanksgiving um, for the mighty things God did. As we start, I want to just encourage you, the youth have been watching this movie, Luther, from 2003. Also, I want to—it was very good movie, um, well done. There's also two documentaries, one by PBS, done in 2006. It's narr- narrated by Liam Nelson, and the scholars in it include Alistair McGrath. Has a lot of acting, some animation, very well done. And then one that just came out this month—I think it was released like last week—and Paul got a copy for the church. I think the small groups or home groups may be watching this. The life and legacy of the German reformer, uh, and the scholars in it include R.C. Sproul, uh, and so you may be seeing that. But I encourage you to to watch these that uh, and and learn from them. The last one, the Luther, the legacy of the German reformer. I really appreciate in it. It has a section about Luther's weaknesses, showing that he was an ordinary man. Uh, in many ways, he had some glaring faults in his life, and yet. God used him in in amazing ways. So I encourage you to keep thinking about these things, studying them. Um, When I looked up the movie Luther, the one recent movie about Luther, you you can't even stream it on Amazon or on Netflix. The week, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, you can't watch it. You can order the DVD, but you can't stream it. I was like, wow. Then on the day of uh, Tuesday, the day of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, the LA Times, I did a search for Protestant Reformation. Nothing. Not one article. Now I understand from somebody there were some things on Sunday about the Protestant Reformation, but on the actual 500th anniversary, I thought, wow. Uh, the world really doesn't get it. The world really sees it very much differently than we do. Um, Chris Crossan uh, helped me in a great way. He introduced me uh, a man, a historian named Philip Schaff, uh, who was a great theologian, church historian at the end of the uh, 20th century, uh, and he did a marvelous job of showing how significant the Protestant Reformation was. And I'm sorry, it's Philip Schaff, and he basically says the Reformation. Was a pivotal time of modern history. In fact, he, Philip Schaff, said that it, it was the turning point, the turning point of modern history. It was the greatest event in history, next to the coming of Christ and the start of Christianity. Um, I don't know. Was, I think for many people, even many Protestants, when we think of it, we don't think of it in, in these terms. We we fail to realize. How significant these events that began 500 years ago were. Schaff said it made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of civilization. Then he talked about, like the first century was a turning point for human f- history with the coming of Christ, so then was the 16th century. That both of them are turning points, uh, and both of the effects are felt today. We're going to talk just a little bit about that. He said this, to honor the Catholic Church, he said, All honor to the Catholic Church and her inestimable services to humanity. But Christianity is far broader and deeper than any ecclesiastical or church organization. The Protestant Reformation burst the shell of medieval forms. It struck out new paths and it elevated Europe to a higher plane of intellectual, moral, and spiritual culture than it had ever attained before. So he's thankful, and we should be as well, for the foundation that the Catholic Church laid up to that point. But then he talks about, he used the term, but the rising of the sun had yet to happen, speaking of the Reformation. And as it came, it burst forth these forms that had been set up and propelled history forward. Luther himself said this. If you read all the annals of the past, you'll find no century like this since the time of Christ. Such building and planting, such good living and dressing, such enterprise and commerce, such a stir in all the arts has, has not been seen since Christ came into the world. How numerous are the sharp and intelligent people who leave nothing hidden or unturned. Even a boy of 20 years knows more nowadays Than was known formerly by 20 doctors of divinity. So even uh, just a few decades after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, he himself saw the incredible things that the Protestant Reformation was doing, propelling history forward. Now the three great fundamental principles of the Reformation are the supremacy of the scripture over tradition. Paul spoke of that last week. The supremacy of faith over works, and also the supremacy of lay people over exclusive priesthood. So, with the Protestant Reformation, we have this idea of the priesthood of believers that would allow a person in the congregation to come forward and share what God was teaching them in their lives, how He was working in their lives. Shaft said, the priesthood of believer raised the laity to active cooperation in the government and administration of the church, gave them a voice and a vote in the choosing of their pastor, made every member of the congregation useful according to their particular spiritual gifts and gifts for the common good. This principle is the source of religious and civil liberty which flourishes most in Protestant countries. And he uh, in talking about this, just the, the flourishing of uh, civil and religious liberty, there's a site called Transparency International. And it's not a Christian organization, a website, and they, they rate all the countries of the world by the amount of corruption. And they define corruption being if you've had power entrusted to you, do uh, you use it for own personal gain rather than for the benefit of the people. And so they do all these studies, and of the top ten nations, eight of them were um, Protestant-majority countries, and the other two were were Protestant-colonized nations. Um, So again, it was another evidence of the impact that the Reformations and the principles of the Reformation have had. So I just want to talk briefly some about the impact of of the Reformation, help us understand that better, and then we're going to talk about Uh, the second principle of uh, Solus Christus. I want to talk about some of the other benefits. Those were the three primary ones that are thought of. Of course, we have the five solas, and they're incorporated in all of this. But some of the ones we don't always think about was the Bible in the liturgy in the mother tongue for the masses. Uh, Later in his life, Luther even began to write some liturgies in German. To that point, what language were they in? Latin. Just think about coming to church week after week after week and having the entire church service be in a language that's not your mother tongue. But that was the state of it. And then the Bible being read, again, not in your mother tongue and not being available to the masses. Um, An interesting thing about the Um, the Bible was that originally before it began being printed to have a priest copy it down for somebody would cost seven years wages to have a Bible. But after it began being printed with a printing press, it came down to six weeks wages. So that even with great sacrifice, a, a peasant, Would be able to own a copy of the Bible. And it's um, 7,300 pages in those days. So this was huge. The Bible in the mother tongue for the masses. An explosion of hymn writing and singing. Um, Luther was known, he wrote several hymns. He wrote, he put the Lord's Prayer to music. And he actually, to one of his colleagues, he commented, the Reformation is spreading like wildfire because of our singing and music. He attributed it more to the music was the reason it was catching on so much and growing, not so much to his own writings. And it was prior to that, there was uh, that was uh, not emphasized in the church, but because of the Reformation, because of people getting the Bible, there began to be more and more hymns written. Then there was an increase in social concern. This was especially seen... Uh, In Geneva, where John Calvin preached for 28 years, and it had an incredible impact on the people. Geneva had the first grammar school. It had the first welfare welfare system, the first hospital. It had the first place where 5,000 refugees were, were provided for. And all of that happened because of the Word of God. As people heard the Word of God, and its principles, they began to live it out. Geneva was called a city of peace because, and it still is known today for being a city that cared for all the peoples of the world because the word of God was unleashed there. I talk about this decrease in corruption that followed the Protestant Reformation, transformation of the work ethic. Uh, Many people at that point felt that work was a curse, but because of Luther's preaching and others, they began to see that even in the Garden of Eden, man was given work, that work was honorable and good, and man was made to, to work. Then, because of the Bible becoming accessible to people, education and literacy grew incredibly during this period as people wanted to read the Bible. And then it went from there being celibate priests to the clergy being married. Luther himself even even married. He married a nun. And that's a very interesting story in itself. We may touch on that in a couple weeks. Um, but this was a big change. And I wanted to take kind of a pause here even to, to go back and touch base just a minute on uh, sola scriptura that Paul was talking about. I think this is a great place to uh, accent that. This idea that the Catholic Church was relying upon the scriptures and human traditions. And in this case, I believe, as they came up and they were saying that the Pope was infallible, when the Pope spoke, his words were infallible, couldn't be wrong. Even though, then years later, a different Pope would speak and contradict the earlier one, but somehow yet still his words were uh, inerrant and uh, even though there was that contradiction. But we see even here, I think, an example of where not only did they consider Scripture and tradition, but tradition trumped Scripture in some cases. And I wanted to, to look at this idea here. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 to 5, I would just wonder when the, whoever was making this doctrine that all the priests had to be celibate if they didn't read this verse. Now the Spirit says, In latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence of foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, marriage, food, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So here's another case. So we have, they're saying, there'll be people that forbid marriage, require abstinence from certain foods. We have instances of the Catholic Church doing that. But... uh, Seeing these scriptures and yet they decided to act that way, I would have been scared to realize. Wow, this is saying people of deceitful spirits and teaching of demons are going to be the ones that say this. People whose hearts, consciences are seared, will be the ones that forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. And I'm not trying to belittle the Catholic Church in any way. Um, and we've made many errors throughout history as Protestants as well. And thankfully, one of the things that happened from the Protestant Reformation was the Catholic Church had re- reformed itself as well. But we know the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if we're letting men, men's ideas triumph Scripture, that is something we have to be, we, we can't do that. We must forbid. And we see it made so clear here in scripture then later in 1 Corinthians Paul again when talking about this issue he said i wish that all were single as i myself am but each has his own gift from god one of this kind and one of another to the unmarried and the widows i say that if it is good for them to remain it is good for them to remain single as i am but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion So a little bit different than today, it's very rare that you hear someone saying, it is really good to be single. But the Bible clearly teaches that, that a single person can devote themselves to the Lord. We don't see many older people that are single. Helen and I were blessed to meet many, couple of men, one that I can think of, and several women that were in their 40s, 50s, 60s in China that were serving God so faithfully as singles and made me understand what Paul was talking about. They were serving him with such focus. Uh, It was beautiful to see. But, Paul said, each has a gift, but it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I I thought of these scriptures as, was it last year when the movie Spotlight came out, showing problems in the Catholic Church of so many priests and um, um, uh, problems they're having um, with sexual molestation and... Um, And again, this is not to say that this has never happened with Protestants either, but it made me think, well, so many of these men that desire to serve God as priests, they are being forced to not marry. They're being forbidden to marry. It doesn't just make sense that, of course, they're going to have, some of them are going to have problems because some of them were not gifted to be single, and they're viling, they're not lining up their life with the Word of God, of course there's going to be problems. So we can't let men's word trump the Scripture. We can't let the traditions of men trump Scripture. And Luther and other Reformers brought this out because, you know, ideas matter. What we believe matters. It, It changes history, just like the Protestant Reformation has changed history. So I think this is a really good example of that the importance of following Scripture. Also, there we went with the Protestant Reformation of praying to saints, to Jesus being the only mediator. It's interesting, Luther himself, there's a famous story of his conversion, there was a lightning storm, and he fell down and he said, um, Saint Anna, save me, I'll become a monk. And when he was, his life was preserved, Fifteen days later, he quit law school and knocked on the door of the monastery because when he said that, he meant that. And in his conscience, he felt like he had to fulfill that vow that that he made. And so he became a monk. But it was praying to the St. Anna. I don't even know who St. Anna is, but that's who he prayed to protect him. Um, So that also changed because of the Protestant Reformation. And then... uh, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Uh, I learned the, that the fancy word for this is the perpiscuity of Scripture. Say that once, perpiscuity. It's just one of those words that kind of feels good when you say it, rolls off your mouth, perpiscuity. Um, I'm not one to try to throw around very big words, but I like that one. And this was a a, a doctrine of, of Luther. And um, what he said was that those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So he's saying even the unlearned. The Bible is written in such a way. The Bible is written in the common language of men, the common Greek. But that the ideas in Scripture, Luther said, even can be figured out by unlearned people. And that we found out as the Scriptures were printed and people got access to them. Ordinary people began receiving blessing from them. They began to understand them. Especially, he says, the the most important ideas could be learned and understood by unlearned people. I remember once hearing somebody say this quote. They said, there are some things in the Bible that I don't understand, but there are many things I cannot help but understand. And that's the way the scriptures are. The, the important, most important things are very clear in scripture. Yeah, there are some difficult things to understand, but the basics, the essentials are, are clear. And Luther said that. Yeah, the ordinary person, even unlearned people, can understand Scripture because God has made Scripture so amazing that it is that way. Then I asked the question Are there any keys here? We think of all these benefits that came, all these ways that society and history was changed because of the Protestant Reformation. And as I look at it, I just, and even as I've talked, the thing I kept talking about is the Word of God. The word of God was was unleashed, unshackled in the Protestant Reformation and it brought incredible change to society. Aren't you so thankful that you have your own personal Bible? That you can pull it out of your pocket and look up a verse if there's something you're wondering about. Uh, I look at mine on my computer every day. I am so thankful. Can you imagine the only time you'd hear Scripture is when you went to church. In the Luther movie, I wasn't able to back it up, um, double-check it, but uh, in the Luther movie, his uh, superior at the monastery saw that Luther had a gift for learning and sent him to become a theology professor. And in the movie, before he goes, he asks Martin Luther, Martin, have you ever studied the New... Oh, have you ever read the New Testament? And you know what he answered? No. Here they were sending him off that he was going to go teach the Bible, but he had not ever read the Bible to that point, which i again I wasn't able to verify that, but it makes sense. The Bible just wasn't available um, and so he hadn't read it, but then he became a great student of it and uh took over basically as the, the dean of that school for the rest of his life as he learned the scriptures because God had blessed him in that way. So I think the scriptures were so key. They're so important to our life. They've been so important to America and so many other countries that has had access to them and tried to live by the principles in the Bible. And then we think about the scriptures in our own heart language. Luther then, later in his life, began to translate the Latin. And he he had, thank the Lord, there was the Greek Bible was available then. So he was able to use it and translate it into his Saxony German dialect. And it began to be printed. And that, again, revolutionized Germany. Because people had God's word in their heart language. We saw this in China working among the Zhuang. I remember we would use um, Mandarin and do Bible studies. And then we began realizing, oh, we would tell a story. We used lots of stories with the farmers that we worked with. And then we'd tell the story in Mandarin. And then we would ask one of them to tell the story in the Zhuang, their Zhuang language, their mother tongue, their day-to-day language. And it was so interesting um, you know, as they did this, as we told it in Mandarin, they would listen quietly, and if we'd ask questions, there would be a little bit of conversation. But when we told them to tell it in Zhuang, and then we'd ask the questions and tell them, now discuss that question in Zhuang, they just came alive. It was just amazing, particularly uh, one of the men in the group. It was very quiet. He wasn't very educated, but boy, as soon as they began talking in drawing. He became the primary spokesman. He would love to tell the story in drawing, and he would always add these little extra things in the story that weren't there, but uh, to keep everybody uh, entertained. But uh, it was incredible to see the impact of God's word in somebody's mother tongue. Or I love the phrase "through their heart language." It's a language that speaks to their heart. That was the power of the Protestant Reformation. God's word was unleashed. And, you know, that was very exciting to see that. But it also breaks my heart in many ways. As we know, there's still thousands of languages in the world where a translation hasn't happened. You know, we're so thankful we have a a woman that spent coming up on 20 years now working on the translation of the, the New Testament in the many of the stories from the Old Testament in Zhuang and having to create the language because Zhuang wasn't even a written language. But doing that and then teaching some locals how to write that way and how to read it and teaching them how to translate the scripture. And these mother tongue translators have come on board with her and they're translating the scriptures. And as they talk about it in their heart language, it is uh, impacting their heart. But there is such a need for that. And even as I prayed for it, I felt that God would say that uh, perhaps there's somebody in this room that God would have to use as a Bible translator. It, it's a unique kind of person, often it's a person who's very detailed. Uh, language is like um, a puzzle in many ways. Um, takes a lot of discipline. Um, it's doing the same thing kind of over and over many times, and yet it's very relational, working with a mother tongue translator and trying to understand, get the right word. There are people that, uh, who like the sciences and physicists, we met several physicists that were translators on the field, um, and they were giving their life because they knew the benefit that God's word had, had in their life, in their heart. And they wanted someone else to have the opportunity to hear God's word in their own heart. But maybe it's not somebody in this room or some people in this room. Maybe God will call some of your children to do this. And God's calling you to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to release my child to do whatever you would have. And not only that, that you would count it a privilege. You'd say, Yes, your child could go go to law school or to an Ivy League school or something, but you would have God's perspective and say it would be an honor for our family if one of our children would go and translate the scriptures so that some people group would be able to hear God's word in their heart language. What an honor that would be. What an honor for our church. if God was to do that. Now let's just pray for a moment and ask God to do that. Lord, just as we think of this, Lord, we think of, we just can't thank you enough for what your word does in our life. How blessed we are to have so many different translations of your word. And Lord, we would ask you that out of the gratitude of our heart, out of thanksgiving for the many blessings we've received from your word, our society, how history, how the world's been changed by the words from your mouth recorded in scripture, Lord, we ask that you would raise up more workers. You're the Lord of the harvest, and you asked us, commanded us to to pray to you that you would send out workers. So, Lord, we ask that from this room, Lord, or from children or friends of people in this room, Lord, that you would do that for your glory, that you would send out workers willing to lay down their lives for the joy of serving you and allowing people to hear your word in their heart language. Lord, help us all to be willing To pray for our children, to pray for others, that we'd be willing to bless them, allow them to do this, if that's how you call them, that we'd be willing even to encourage people to consider this, this holy calling of providing your word for those that don't have it. Lord, we just lift this up to you for the sake of your name and your kingdom, we pray. Amen. And the power of the word was clearly understood by Luther. Uh, He said, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. In other words, do you want to hear God's voice? Do you want to hear God speak to you? Then read the Bible. That's what he said. And then in 1533, he said this, for a number of years now, I have annually read through the Bible twice, if the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all of its words were little branches, I have tapped at all the branches, eager to know what was there and what it had to offer. I think this picture that he's using as an analogy is like a fruit tree, that when you tap on a branch, the, the fruit that's ripe will fall off it. And so he read through the Bible, tapping on all the verses to see was there a treat there for him, was there a truth Something for him, and it was said that in a four-year period, he and one other man did the preaching at the at Wittenberg, um, and that in fifteen twenty-two, Luther preached one hundred and seventeen sermons; one hundred and thirty-seven the next year. In fifteen twenty-eight, he preached almost two hundred times, and then another hundred and twenty-one sermons in fifteen twenty-nine. So the average in those four years was one sermon every two and a half days. <laughs> so he loved the Word of God. He was always reading it and preaching it. No wonder God used him so powerfully. Well, that moves us now to Solus Christus. And I was I went to Google Translate because I said, I don't know how you pronounce Latin. And I started listening to it. I said, that sounds just like Italian. And I played it with... Solus Christus. I said, oh, I said, oh, yeah, Italian came from Latin. Well, that makes sense. It made me think uh, in high school, I, I went to a school that was 25% black and 75% white. We had Chuck Roach, I think I've mentioned him before, the one Hispanic guy in our, our high school, and uh, Mike Mastrulo, we called him Tank Mastrulo, he was the one Italian. So that was it black, white, one Hispanic, and one Italian. But Mike Mastrulo, he was the Italian, he was very proud of it. He used to always say, he, his big Italian joke was, he said, "Why do you know why us Italians got such a big of shoulders and such a flat head, huh? You know? I tell you why. You ask us a question, we go, I don't know. You tell us the answer. Ah. Oh. <laughs> well, first, I hope that doesn't offend any Italians here, but I don't think we have any. But he was Italian, he thought that was a funny joke. But... But that's how you pronounce, Solus Christus, Christus. Um, "sola Scriptura. Uh, so I just kind of, wow, Martin Luther was talking like that in Latin? Uh, but, but that's what we want to talk about here. And this is a very serious topic. What is Solus Christus? Christ's work alone is sufficient for our salvation. As it says here, the Catholic Church was saying this Christ plus the Church in applying Christ's work to us through the sacraments and to our cooperation with God to merit eternal life are necessary for our salvation. Well that's kind of complicated, huh? Um, even the grammar on that it doesn't is, is confusing to me. But I was thinking about this this formula Christ plus the Church applying Christ's work to us through the sacraments. And then our cooperation with God to merit eternal life are necessary for our salvation. So this word, merit, that we have to do something to earn, to merit eternal life, doesn't set well with me. Of course not. And I was thinking about this. Even as we sang this morning some of these songs where we're talking about the Christ did it all. I said... If they had hymns back then, they couldn't sing. Christ did it all. Christ, plus the church applying Christ's work to us through the sacraments and our cooperation, did it all. Um, and I don't mean to be mocking there, but it just has a feel that that's not right. It's so simple. Christ did it all for us. And the idea of us trying to earn our salvation, that there's, if there's something we can do to bridge the gap between us and the Holy God. And I'm um, taking in a seminary class on interpretation, and one of my classmates was showing me we're learning how to go back to the original languages, and I had a Greek class, but it was 20 years ago, and I, I can't even remember how to read Greek anymore. So he's helping me, but he was showing me, he said, look at this. There's the verse in Isaiah that says, our righteous acts, our good deeds to the Lord are nothing but filthy rags. And so he said, look what I discovered. And he goes back, he shows him this tool that takes you back. You look up that uh, Hebrew word for rags, and then it shows you the definitions of it, how it was used. And that word, the primary meaning was the piece of cloth that a woman used to, to help stop her menstrual bleeding. That rag. That our acts of righteousness are like that kind of rag. And yet, in God's perspective, that's what our good works are like. And we think we can earn merit. We can earn our way by doing good deeds to have salvation. Rome believed that Christ's work only pays for our past sin. But for our present and future sin, we are saved by a combination of Christ's merit and our sacramental incorporation into Christ via the church. By receiving the sacraments, Christ's work is is applied to us, and our natures are infused with divine grace, thus transforming our natures and enabling us to cooperate with God to merit eternal life. That's just way too complicated. I mean, you just sense that. That just can't be right. And the Reformers said, no, the Scriptures are clear. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Thank the Lord that this was revealed for it's transformed the world. The seven sacraments were baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, confession, anointing of the sick with oil, holy orders, that's how they become a priest, deacon, or bishop, and, and matrimony marriage. And so there's, these are all kind of complicated subjects, but these were an important part of somebody becoming saved. And the reformers said, "Luther said, "No, it's Christ alone.' It'd be like, if we're singing a song, thank you for saving the Lord. thank you for your death." And then we had to work these seven sacraments into the song there too, so that we could merit eternal life. It just just doesn't ring in our hearts, we know, because God's spirit lives in us that that's not true. And So thankfully, the Reformation happened and it reformed the Catholic Church in many ways as well. But as we look here, um, this idea, there's two aspects really of Solus Christus. One is that Christ's work alone is sufficient for our salvation. That's what the Reformers were primarily concerned with. There's also this aspect of it that Christ alone, because he was fully God and fully man alone can be the mediator between man and alone, man and god alone can he be our savior because he was fully god because he was fully man he can be our representative because he was fully man he can be our representative because he was fully god his death can pay the payment for the sins of all men if he was just fully man one man's death can't pay the payment for all of the world's sin He'd have to be God. This is why he had to be God. He had to be fully God and fully man. And this, Christ's exclusive identity, the uniqueness of Christ, this is an important part as well. It wasn't really the issue that was debated then. But Paul's encouraged us, and I appreciate this, that we need to think about, well, how do these five solas impact us today? And here is where the rubber meets the road for us, the uniqueness of Christ. As Greg Waybright said, he's the pastor at um, Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, said our 21st century mantra is, whatever you believe is okay if it works for you. If you want to believe in Jesus, do it. That's great. But the teaching that Jesus and Jesus alone was both God and man, that he and he alone lived a sinless life, that he and he alone was able to atone for our sin, and that therefore Jesus and he alone is able to forgive our sins and make us right with God. This teaching is as offensive in our world as much as the teaching that our own works can do nothing to save us was offensive 500 years ago. So the reformers saying, no, our works can do nothing to save us. It's all through Christ. It's all through what he's done was an offense back then. Just as people are offended today when we say only Jesus and Jesus alone can reconcile us back to God. It's interesting here, I I looked this up in a dictionary, intolerance, and I went to the vocabulary.com and I don't think it's especially scholarly, you can tell as we read it here, but I like it. I like the way this is, I think, like a hipster's definition of intolerance. Intolerance is an unwillingness to accept the beliefs or behavior of someone different from you. It is not a quality you want to have. <laughs> intolerance is what leads to hate crimes and discrimination. I thought, that really captures today what people, how people think about intolerance. Now, I went to the new Oxford American Dictionary and look how different its scholarly definition is. Intolerance is an unwillingness to allow the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not agree with. So if we are tolerant, we're willing to allow the existence of other opinions we don't agree with. But according to the day, today tolerance is not a willingness to allow the existence. You have to accept the beliefs and you have to accept the behaviors. No, there are behaviors and beliefs that we believe are not true. So requiring us to accept them, that's a huge difference than being willing to allow them to exist. Of course, as Christians, we allow others the opportunity to believe what they want. It's a free country. They have the freedom to do that, whatever country they're in. And intolerance does not necessarily lead to hate crimes and discrimination. Just because we don't accept and believe someone else's belief system doesn't mean we're going to go out and commit hate crimes but that's what the world's idea has become unfortunately this is the world we live in this is our solus Christus the issue that we deal with today so i wanted to just end by saying what does scripture what does scripture say to us today to deal with our Solus Christus. The first one is 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, he's saying, hey, if you do good, is is anybody going to harm you? Basically, that is, no, normally if you're doing the right thing, no one's going to harm you. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those that would persecute you or be troubled, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So he's saying here, yes, normally if you do what's good, nobody's going to harm you. But there are occasions now that we do suffer for righteousness sake. We do what's right, and yet we're persecuted. People want to harm you. But he said, don't be troubled. Instead, honor Christ in your heart as holy. This idea of holy is set apart. So we're to set apart Christ. He's different. He alone is holy, the unique Savior. So we set them apart and we're always prepared to make a defense for anyone that gives us a reason for the hope in us, yet we do it with gentleness and respect. That's what we're called to, is we are still called to proclaim the gospel, but we must do it with gentleness and respect to others. Setting Christ apart, He alone is holy. He's different from all the other religions of the world says you have to do something to earn God's favor. Christ says, no, it's already done. Just receive it. Then lastly, I want to look at this passage in John. This is a very famous passage. In fact, I believe I've preached on this before. In John 15, that's in the middle of what they call Jesus' final discourse, his final set of teaching. And before this, he's just washed his disciples' feet, and just after this he praises his high priestly prayer and then his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So these are like his final teachings, and someone has said, you know it's a little bit like if, say the person that's had them, think of the person that's had the most influence on your spiritual life, and then you hear that they've had a heart attack, they're very sick, so you go to their bedside. <laughs> And they've mentored you your whole life. And they know there's a good chance they may pass on to be with the Lord. And so they say, I have a few last things that I want to encourage you about. All right, when they say that, you pull your chair up close to them, don't you? And you turn your ear. You don't want to miss what they're having to say. These are the final things your spiritual mentor is going to say before they pass on. That's what it's like here with Jesus. These are his final words, final teaching, block of teaching that he's going to give his disciples. We're just going to look at this last section, but he talks to them about three relationships. First, he talks about their relationship with Christ and tells them, abide in me, live in me, get your strength from me, just like a branch gets its strength from the vine. He emphasized that so much. Abide in my love. Live in my love. Get your strength from me. Don't try to do it in your own strength. And then he says, then in your relationships with others, love one another. And we've talked about the way that we do that because he talks about benefits, the benefit abiding in his that we're going to bear fruit, that God will prune us so we can bear even more fruit. It's a wonderful thing. And it's so foundational. If you remember, we talked that one time of pouring water in a cup and out of the overflow of that, we love others, and then lastly, we testify to the world that we get. It's, it'd be maybe a better illustration if there was a spring of living water, and we put our cup over the our tube over the top of that, and we were filled. And as we overflow with that water, it spills out, enables us to love others and testify to others. So, in each of these first sections, he's talking about our relationship with Christ, then our relationship with other Christians. We're to love one another. And the benefits of that, he talks about, are will bear fruit that last. But interesting, in the last section, he talks about our relationship with the world. And he gives two commands here. The earlier commands were abide and love one another. But now, he says, remember and testify. What does he tell them to remember? He says, remember, a servant is not above their master. If they persecuted me... They're going to persecute you, so it 's a very sober message here. Remember, you know I've said before, realistic expectations are one of the most important things in life. If you have unrealistic expectations of what your wife's going to do in your marriage, oh, I thought she was going to do all the dishes and all the cleaning, and I would do the bills, and she expects you to be doing all the cleaning. you got some problems, all right, unexpected. Uh, unrealistic expectations in any area of our life makes things difficult. And so Jesus addresses this. He's frank with them. He says, hey, I'm getting ready to leave. If they persecuted me, they are going to persecute you. But then he goes on to say, but if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. And when he comes, he'll testify of me. And you too are to testify of me. And it's kind of interesting because having just told them you're going to be persecuted, what would the natural response of the disciples be? would be to pull back. Oh, wow, if we're going to be persecuted, people are going to revile me. People are going to, Jesus said, some will think they're doing a a honor to God by killing you. Whoa, the disciples are saying, oh, maybe we ought to tone it down a little bit. Maybe we say the same today. Oh, if people are going to get worked up and call me intolerant if I I politely disagree and say I don't believe their way of thinking. Even if I'm polite, they're going to get worked up about it. Maybe we ought to just pull back. But no, Jesus then surprises them and says, and you too must testify. But instead of telling them the benefits they'll have here, he tells them why they should continue to testify. And I'm just going to skip down here to the the reasons here. He tells them basically, the Holy Spirit is with us and he'll help us. He says, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit is going to be a helper. He is a helper to us as we share the gospel in this world today that says, how dare you say only only Jesus is the way to be reconciled to God. How intolerant and arrogant of you. That's what the world's saying more and more. But Jesus says, hey, you will be persecuted, but no, the helper's coming. He's going to help you. He is the advocate, the helper. He comes alongside of us, other places in Scripture say. And then, remember, He's going to convict people of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. You share the gospel and your job's not to bring conviction that there's sin in their life, that God is righteous and they're not, and that one day they're going to have to stand before judgment. He says, that's not your job. You present the gospel. The Holy Spirit is going to do that. That's why you can testify, because the results aren't up to you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to do this. Just this week, I was at a conference on racial reconciliation, and Dr. Kevin Smith was the speaker, and he lived on the East Coast, and he was telling them when he grew up, he got saved as a teenager, and their church, he's African American, their church would go out to a difficult neighborhood and share the gospel. And as they were doing it one day, the leader said, okay, we're going to go down these streets, but we're going to skip those two streets, because that's a bad, bad neighborhood, and we'll go over here and do these streets. So he did it, and he said he was with his dad, but he said after they got finished, they were kind of driving back, he said, Dad, I... I still feel right about that, skipping those two streets because that's a bad neighborhood. That's why we're, we're out here sharing. And he said, so his dad said, well, what well, you want to do, something?" He said, well, I think we should go over that street and, and preach to them too. So they went up to the first house and he knocked on the door. Nobody came out. He knocked again. Somebody came forward and had a pistol in their hand and said, what do you want? And he said, wow, suddenly I realized why they said we shouldn't go to those streets. And he said, I cried out to God, I said, God, help me. And then he kind of stumbled, and while he was trying to figure out what to say, another guy came out. He had a gun as well. And he said, God, help me. And he said, what do you want? And he replied, well, I'm here, I wanted to tell you about how God wants to bring forgiveness in our lives for the things we've done wrong and how he cares about us. And he began to go on sharing the gospel. And he said, right before my eyes, this man on the left, tears coming down his cheeks. And he got saved that day. And 18 of the 20 people in that gang got saved in the the weeks to come. And he said, that day I realized, wow, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. That's his work. I didn't do that. But he helped me. He brought conviction. That's his job. Ours is to proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly with gentleness and respect. And then he says the Holy Spirit's going to guide us into all truth. He's going to guide us in what to do. When we're in a tough situation we'll say, God, what do I do? Jesus said, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send my Spirit. He'll be in your heart, and He'll tell you what to do. That's why you can still testify in a world that says you're intolerant. And He says the Holy Spirit will make known to us the things of God. I think here He's referring to the events that are going to happen with Jesus' death, His resurrection, His ascension. God's Holy Spirit's going to help them understand that. But in our lives, he also helps us understand. We ask him for wisdom. He says he gives it to those that ask. So there's a lot of confusing things that happen in our lives. But God gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could testify in the middle of a world that says, you're arrogant. How dare you say that Jesus is the only way? But we can still do it because he gives us his Holy Spirit. Jesus prepared us. He said, This is going to happen. This is just the way the world is. He warned us. He warned his disciples the same today. He's not surprised by this. But thank the Lord, He gave us the Holy Spirit in our heart that we can face the soulless Christus in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the amazing things you did through the Protestant Reformation. We thank you for your word and the power that it has in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we each have a Bible and can read it whenever we want and that you've made it so that we can understand it and be blessed from it. Lord, help us to be bold in sharing your gospel clearly with others, that we do it with respect as we share. And Father, that we do it knowing that your Holy Spirit will bring conviction, will guide us, will help us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't ever call us to do something without giving us the resources for it. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us not to just be hearers, but be doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.